electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner. On the 122nd day of the coronavirus crisis, Wall Street surges amid new promise of a drug to fight COVID-19. A drug can block this virus. Optimism soars. It means you build on it. And so do stocks. Tonight, new details on positive data on Gilead's drug to fight the coronavirus. And one doctor's warning, this isn't over yet. Starting next week, here in the U.S., we are going to open a significant number of Starbucks stores. More CEOs of major companies say they're making plans to reopen. What about schools? Tonight, the leader of one of the biggest teachers' unions has a warning. This CNBC special report starts right now. Here's Scott Wapner. And it is good to have you with us on this Wednesday night. After a big day on Wall Street, let's get right to our first check of the futures this evening. Very early, as you know, but they are up. And nicely, after strong earnings after the close from some of this country's biggest tech companies. Well, I mentioned the rally today, the Dow rising 532 points with today's more than two and a half percent gain. The S&P now on pace for its best month since 1974. The Nasdaq was up three and a half percent and helping out there gains in big tech names like Google Parent Alphabet, Facebook and Apple. Well, one major reason for today's big jump in stocks, promising new numbers from a clinical drug trial of Gilead's remdesivir. Our Meg Terrell following this story from the very beginning has those details for us tonight. Meg. Hi, Scott. Well, this was the news that we've been waiting for, and we didn't expect to come for another month. The National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases ran a trial of more than 1,000 hospitalized patients with COVID-19, comparing Gilead's experimental antiviral drug remdesivir to placebo. Now, that, of course, is the gold standard of clinical trials to determine whether a drug works. The news today, it did. The data shows that remdesivir has a clear-cut, significant, positive effect in diminishing the time to recovery. This is really quite important. Now, it's not a cure, but the results showed that remdesivir, given as an IV infusion in the hospital, helped patients recover faster than placebo, a median of 11 days for patients on the drug, compared with 15 days in the placebo group. And the data came a month earlier than expected. Whenever you have clear-cut evidence that a drug works, you have an ethical obligation to immediately let the people who are in the placebo group know so that they could have access. And all of the other trials that are taking place now have a new standard of care. 
Now, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb said based on the results, he expects the FDA could issue an emergency use authorization for the drug immediately. And it's been a rocky road to this point with reports on whether remdesivir works all over the map. At the beginning of this month, Gilead reported that a look at the experience of 53 patients receiving the drug on compassionate use outside of clinical trials indicated some potential benefit. Then, a report from Stat News a few days later on one hospital's experience further bolstered hopes. But a week after that, those hopes dashed. Accidentally posted results on the World Health Organization's website from a stopped trial in China suggested no benefit. So all eyes were on this week when Gilead was expected to report the first of its own trials. Instead, we got the NIAID results as well. Dr. Fauci, who's led that agency since the early days of AIDS, today put the moment and the potential role of remdesivir into historical context. It was reminiscent of 34 years ago in 1986 when we were struggling for drugs for HIV and we had nothing. And there was a lot of anecdotal reports about things that maybe did work, maybe not. People were taking different kinds of drugs. And we did the first randomized placebo-controlled trial with AZT, which turned out to give an effect that was modest. But that was not the end game, because building on that every year after, we did better and better. Now, remdesivir's effect, experts say, isn't strong enough to be the end game on its own, but it provides a building block for treatments. Now, the question turns to supply and to cost. Remdesivir is a complex drug to manufacture. And Gilead's CEO has communicated through a series of open letters how the company is working to shorten manufacturing times and massively scale up supply. Its goal is to have 140,000 treatment courses available by the end of May, assuming a 10-day course of treatment. But Gilead's own trial, also reported today, showed a five-day course may work just as well, doubling the amount of drug available to treat patients. The company says it's providing the entirety of that supply at no cost. And Scott, it's manufacturing that across three continents through different partners. Back over to you. Meg, we appreciate it very much. That's our Meg Terrell reporting for us tonight. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, mentioned by Meg, is a CNBC contributor, the former head of the FDA, joining us once again this evening. Dr. Gottlieb, you heard the news. You've commented on it. But how big is this? Well, look, I think it's consistent with what we've been saying over the course of weeks now, if not months. The drug, there is data to suggest that the drug's active. It's not a home run. It's not a cure for the virus. But it's a drug that looks active against the virus, and if used appropriately, probably can benefit a certain percentage of patients. I think the proper role for this drug is going to be early in the course of the, of the disease. So you'll probably hang it in the emergency room when people first arrive with COVID, um, suffering from symptoms of, of the virus itself. And it's probably going to be more effective in patients who have comorbidities that, are, that predict that they're more likely to have a bad outcome from COVID-19. And so I think used appropriately in higher risk patients early in the course of their disease, this could have a treatment effect that could be meaningful. Meg mentioned the challenge of producing enough of it. Can we do that? Well, the company is supply constrained. It's a complex manufacturing process. They've brought on contract manufacturers to try to ramp up supply. They've talked about having up to a million uh, treatment courses by the end of the year um, and maybe 400,000 as early as the fall. 
hopefully it's going to be enough. Um, this drug probably isn't for everyone. It's going to be for hospitalized patients. It needs to be delivered intravenously. It's probably going to be used at least initially in patients who have more significant disease or patients who are more likely to suffer an adverse outcome from COVID-19. So it's not going to be used probably initially in people who are otherwise healthy and more likely to do well with, with the virus. I think given that um, use pattern, we probably have enough doses to take us into the fall and deal with what's likely to be outbreaks of this infection in the fall. Remember, this isn't the last word on drugs. We're likely to have other products coming to the market, particularly those antibody drugs that we've talked about. I think coupled with those other therapies, this can be an important step forward and part of an overall toolbox that can reduce the risk of this infection. What else needs to be in the toolbox? We need very robust screening, which we're going to have in the fall. We're ramping up the ability to test people for this virus very quickly. I think by June, we'll have substantial capacity to do testing. We'll need capacity to do contact tracing. So when people are infected, try to trace people who they might have been in contact with and offer them the opportunity to be tested so that we can track and trace and try to contain spread. And in one or more therapeutics, I think remdesivir coupled with one of those antibody drugs that could be used as both a treatment and early infection and a prophylaxis to prevent people from getting infected in the first place, that's a pretty robust toolbox. That's a toolbox that can help reduce the risk. It's not going to cure the virus. We're still going to face risk from it. But what we're looking to do is to try to mitigate the risk of this virus and, and reduce bad outcomes, reduce hospitalizations and ICU admissions until we get to a vaccine. These are early days. I can't remember a virus where the first generation antiviral that we came up with to target a virus was a slam dunk home run. With every virus, the first generation of drugs were not that good. And then second and third generation drugs came along. I think the innovation in this space, given all the intense focus of the biopharmaceutical industry, is going to be pretty quick. Can you speak to the fact um, about what Dr. Fauci was talking about today in the Oval Office about the fact that this study was stopped early because of the what he called ethical obligation to tell those in the placebo group and then have access for them to this treatment? Right. That's not unusual. Um, there's interim looks and trials. And when you see that the active arm is having a robust treatment effect um, and having better outcomes, you want to allow the patients in the placebo group, the patients who are re receiving an inert drug, to cross over to the active arm and receive the therapy. And at some point when you know that a drug's working in a setting like this where people are suffering very bad outcomes, you want to make the, the treatment more broadly available. And if the FDA issues an emergency use authorization, which would authorize this drug to be distributed through commercial channels, that's going to make broader availability of this treatment in the setting of the epidemic. The epidemic is in its decline, thankfully. Um, hopefully into next month we'll see a, a sharp reduction in the number of cases. But there are still people suffering from this virus and still people presenting with virus, with infection, um, that are at risk of bad outcomes and maybe could be benefiting from remdesivir. So I think it's going to be made more broadly available. Remember also there were open-label studies alongside this randomized placebo-controlled trial, and so a lot of people were getting access to the drug in the context of those open-label studies. Let's talk about now what you've called the race to a vaccine. Interesting story today that the administration has a program called Operation Warp Speed to fast track the approval and the production of a vaccine able to give as many as 300 million doses by January? What do we know? Well, it's not clear what the administration is going to stand up. I think that what is clear is that there is an intense focus on trying to bring together a more coordinated process to try to get to a vaccine quickly and solve the biggest challenge, which is going to be the commercial scale up of manufacturing. That's someplace where the, where the government can play an important role. 
Um, you know, the manufacturers of biopharmaceutical companies are working on a number of different vaccines. There's a lot of companies working on this now and a lot of U.S. domicile companies working on it. I think we're going to have a successful product, uh, hopefully by the fall, a product that's cleared preliminary safety studies and is entering pivotal studies. What we're, what's going to be more challenging is scaling up the manufacturing and getting to the hundreds of millions of doses you need, not just to mass inoculate the U.S. population, but also provide it globally. And remember, this is a vaccine that's going to be used very broadly. So we're going to want to have a very large safety database for this vaccine. This is going to be trialed probably in tens of thousands of patients so that we have enough clinical data to give us confidence that it's not just working, but that it's safe for use in a very broad population. They're talking about what they call, quote, a master protocol, which I'm hoping you can shed some light on. And maybe that's what you're speaking on right now, rather than this traditional clinical trial that we've become used to. Well, what a master protocol basically is, is it's one big trial and you enroll, you know, tens of thousands of patients into a single trial and then you randomize the patients to receive the different therapies, in this case, the different vaccines. I think what would happen is if we had an outbreak of COVID-19 in a major American city, and I think, unfortunately, we're going to be facing this prospect in the fall, what you would do is randomize people to receive the vaccine at different intervals. So you might on day one randomize 25,000 people to receive a vaccine, and then two weeks later enroll another 25,000 patients to receive the vaccine, and then two weeks after that, another 25,000 patients. And what you would do is look at the three different treatment arms and see if the time of inoculation had an impact on people's propensity to get the infection. So that's, that's one kind of clinical trial that you can roll out in the setting of an outbreak. So you're using the vaccine not just in a way that you're, you're testing it to see if it works and if it's, in fact, safe and effective, but you're also using it as a potential treatment to ring fence an outbreak. And if these vaccines clear preliminary safety studies, which they're in right now, uh, you'll be in a position to do that in the fall. And some of the manufacturers have already said they'll have enough doses. They'll have millions of doses available to use the vaccine to deploy it in that way. Does it carry more risk than your typical clinical trial? I don't think it carries more risk in terms of the structure of the clinical trial. I think these vaccines carry more risk only insofar as there's more uncertainty around them. We've never developed a vaccine to a coronavirus before. And the kinds of platforms that are being used to target this coronavirus, the vaccine platforms that we're using, either the mRNA vaccines or the protein vaccines or DNA vaccines or adenoviral vector vaccines, those are the major platforms. We typically haven't used those platforms to make vaccines in the past. Vaccines have been made through um, very old-fashioned ways. Our, our approaches to making vaccines haven't changed in many years in many cases. So we're using newer technology here, and that brings more uncertainty. Now, that said, some of these platforms have been used already, so we do have some experience with them in certain um, viruses, including the Ebola vaccine. Uh, the Ebola vaccine was also developed using a novel uh, vaccine platform. Let's not forget, we were talking about a timeline 12 to 18 months in the early days of, of this outbreak. Does it sound realistic to you that we could really produce 300 million doses to be given by January? I think that's ambitious. I think that we could have hundreds of millions of doses into next year, into 2021. But, you know, if you're looking across all the manufacturers and you aggregate all the supply that they're capable of bringing on the market, it could be substantial. Remember, there's some very big companies involved in this, including the company that I serve on the board of Pfizer. And so if all those companies were each to pr produce the vaccines in significant quantities, and, and a lot of them have committed to do that um, at risk, I think you could have a lot of vaccine available across all the different vaccine platforms that, that are in development. The hope here is that we have more than one vaccine. We really need multiple manufacturers to be successful here. Another interesting factor here is that taxpayers would apparently fund this 
which would ease the burden on drug companies like Pfizer, in which you do serve on the board, that would be critical, especially if things didn't work out, right? Well, the, and some of the money from the government has already supported some of the development. So J&J received money from BARDA to help support some of the manufacturing. Um, the companies are doing a lot of this at risk. They put up their own money. But certainly if the government steps in, and, and they will, the money's been allocated by Congress and been appropriated for this, the government steps in to guarantee purchase of certain amounts of vaccine. That's going to make it easier to make the substantial capital investments in new manufacturing facilities that you're going to need. So there is going to be substantial government support here for all the companies um, that are involved in this, all of them. All right, let's move from science to uh, plans to reopen uh, the country in, in, in certain ways. Simon Property Group, one of the largest mall operators in this country, plans to open 49 malls in 10 states by Monday. Is that a good idea? Well, look, it depends on the states and it depends on what they're going to be doing in terms of opening those retail sites. The reality is that there's 25 states where the number of cases of coronavirus are still increasing on a daily basis. There's really only five or six states that meet the criteria set out by the White House in terms of sustained reduction in new cases that they can safely reopen. Um, and so you need to look state by state. Certain states, I think, are in much better shape than others. Certainly when you look at the hard hit states like the Northeast or states like Louisiana or Florida or Georgia, those are harder hit states where they had bigger epidemics and they need to be more cautious about reopening. I think the risk here isn't necessarily that we get a, a resurgent epidemic in the summer. The risk is that we never get rid of the virus and we have smoldering infections. We still have thousands of cases on a daily basis all through the summer. And then when we enter the fall, then we get a combustion of those cases and the risk of another epidemic or certainly large outbreaks. So we really need to try to snuff this out. Does it concern you at all in, in light of what you're just mentioning here? Starbucks today, the CEO on this network, said the, the company plans to open more than 90 percent of its stores, at least for um, mobile uh, ordering by June. Are, are you on board with d decisions like that? Well, Starbucks in a lot of states has still been open. Um, here in my state in Connecticut, you can still drive up and get coffee from Starbucks. And so they've been doing that. I think Starbucks has actually taken steps to um, try to reduce risk in their establishments, and it's been a good corporate citizen. They were one of the first to implement measures in their stores even before we started to shut down um, retail locations in this country to try to reduce risk. For example, not allowing people to bring in mugs to be refilled so you reduce the risk that you can get, you can get transfer of infection um, from, from barristers touching mugs that get brought in and then touching other people's mugs. So I think they've thought very carefully about this, and I would defer to the company. I think that they have been thoughtful. Covered a lot tonight, Dr. Gottlieb. Appreciate it as always. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks a lot. That's Dr. Scott Gottlieb, a CNBC contributor, former head of the FDA. Back to today's big rally on Wall Street. NASDAQ now up 34% since its low hit on March 23rd. The index now virtually flat for the year. The Russell 2000 small caps up 10% in just three days. For more now on Wall Street's rise, let's bring in Mike Santoli. Mike, it's hard to believe we're not that far away from S&P 3000. It is, Scott. I mean, you know, almost nobody expects uh, this economic recovery to look like a V-shape, but the market so far has been a very sharp-looking V, uh, regaining about 60% of the total losses in the S&P 500. And obviously, I mean, you can kind of go down the list of reasons and what got us to this point, one being it probably was a very panicky overshoot in the short term when it seemed like there was this kind of unchecked uh, infection situation going on through March. Uh, and then the, the rebound after the Federal Reserve came in and kind of said, we're not going to let the market seize up, um, was, was very sharp and profound. 
And uh, honestly, it's just the market in the last week or so has been seizing on every little bit of incremental information that allows people to try and project a reopening of the economy sooner versus uh, later versus the expectations. And I guess the only other thing I would add is that the very large tech companies, which were in favor and leading the market before the crisis, have kind of proven why they were they were in that position and had that status because of the resilience of their businesses right now. So how much further this goes is is very tough to say at this juncture. Uh, but I think all that stuff worked in favor uh, of this uh, kind of unexpectedly strong rebound. I wanted to ask you next. We know why we've gotten here. At least we think we do. What yeah. keep what keeps us here? It's uh, it's it's a tough question. You know what I think is happening is. The investors are implicitly giving every company in America a pass for the next quarter or two. Uh, and it's almost like when you've got nothing, you've got nothing to lose. When you don't have expectations for companies delivering uh, earnings within, any narrow, within a narrow band, uh, you can kind of just project out in a general way, say, uh, we think things will be better uh, down the road. Now, we are up to a level on the S&P. I think it is significant, having regained 60%. We are basically where we uh, peaked out in the summer of 2018. Also, by the way, almost exactly flat from 12 months ago this day. Um, So it does seem as if it should get a little bit tougher, uh, if only because today and and this week, it has seemed like a little bit of a chase, a performance anxiety move where investors having gone to cash near the lows felt in a hurry to try and participate and get exposure to this market that seemed like it wasn't going to let them in. Mike, appreciate it. It seems like investors are definitely looking to hang on any bit of good news. I'm reading right now, BMW to restart U.S. production May 4th, that breaking just a few moments ago, and maybe that'll uh, give uh, the bulls a little more momentum. Mike Santoli, thank you. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, is coming right back. Ahead tonight, the head of one of the biggest teachers' unions in the country on whether the instructors are ready to reopen schools. Plus, it's like a, a ghost town. It's like a walking dead almost. Main Street in crisis. One town's pain and problems close up. Before the break, images from around this country on the 122nd day of the coronavirus crisis. for financial markets. At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Here are tonight's headlines on day 122 of the coronavirus crisis. Lyft is laying off a thousand employees. That's 17 percent of its workforce and furloughing hundreds more as demand for ride sharing plummets. Yesterday, it was reported that Uber is considering laying off 20 percent 
of its staff. Texas Tech and Alabama both say they plan to have students back on campus for the fall semester. And news from the national pastime tonight, Major League Baseball postponing this year's Hall of Fame inductions. Running a business, as you know, on Main Street in any American town is challenging even in good times. But trying to keep it alive during a pandemic tests an entrepreneur in ways most never imagined. CNBC's Andrea Day tonight on three business owners from one Long Island town who candidly share their struggle to find a path forward with Main Street in crisis. Port Washington is really close to New York City, but you would never know it. It feels like any other small town with an incredibly close-knit community. When this coronavirus hit, we literally hit a brick wall and just had to stop immediately. We are full-service music school. It's had a tremendous impact on us. We couldn't figure out how to apply a band to a Zoom virtual session. Our band program is almost 50% of our revenue. It dropped tremendously, thousands and thousands of dollars. Good, okay, so those are all the notes. We were able to schedule online remote virtual music lessons for private lesson students who had instruments at home. Um, voice lessons were pretty easy. And pull with the back of your arm. Not far from this music lesson, a sign company adjusts to the shutdown. We still kind of, like most Americans, probably are saying, when are we going to wake up from this nightmare? We were really growing at a rapid rate, and it just stopped. Every other phone call was a stop project, stop project. We tried to stop supplies. We tried to stop everything to try and preserve the cash flow. We just decided to sprinkle them around town, and we, we really wanted to do it under the radar. We just wanted to be something that people would see and not feel so alone. Around the corner, a 50-year-old pizzeria is doing takeout only. It's like a ghost town. It's like the walking dead almost, about the zombies. I'm still being able to pay my bills and my guys. First priority. And that's it. She thinks her relationship with customers is what's keeping her business going during the outbreak. Well, you know, people love me. They, you know what? Um, I can be pretty abrupt sometimes. <laughs> but I think people like it that about me because I'm real. You got to take care of your employees. You got to hunker down and try and get through this. Um, we're all in it together. But we really are. That's the truth. We're strong and we can handle it. We wish all of them well. That was CNBC's Andrea Day reporting. And over the coming weeks, we'll keep bringing you these stories from Main Street in crisis. There is more ahead on this CNBC special report. Markets in turmoil. We think it's really opening the door to the fact that we now have the capability of treating. Next tonight, one prominent doctor on why he isn't nearly as optimistic as so many other Americans on the possibility Gilead's drug gets us out of the woods. And I'm feeling a bit of a thaw, and I'm hoping it's a thaw, and uh, we're going to continue to work towards reopening. By early June, plan to have over 90% of our stores open in the U.S. Some of the biggest names in the C-suite, sounding off about what's next for the American economy. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, is coming right back. Meet Gail. Her thing is being a supermom. And supermom has a lot on her supersized plate. <laughs> Ain't that the truth. But at Walmart Pharmacy, supermom recently got her whole family updated on all their vaccines. We knocked it out during a grocery run. No appointment. That's next level supermom. 
from pneumonia to shingles, HPV, and more. Get no-cost vaccinations from an expert pharmacist where you already shop. Welcome to an easier pharmacy. Welcome to your Walmart. $0 copay with most insurances. State age and health restrictions may apply. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash. The data shows that remdesivir has a clear-cut, significant, positive effect in diminishing the time to recovery. This is really quite important. But not everyone agrees. Tonight, one doctor's cause for concern. Plus, one pharmaceutical executive's path forward to prevent a national antibiotic emergency. This CNBC special report continues. Once again, here's Scott Wapner. It's good to have you back with us following a big jump for stocks today. Strong earnings after the bell from Microsoft and Facebook have the futures higher right now. The Nasdaq, there you go, at the bottom would open higher by more than 100 points right now. By the way, if that happened, Nasdaq would be positive. That's right, positive for 2020 thus far. Today's stocks rallied after positive news on Gilead's potential virus treatment. The Dow rising more than 530 points. The S&P 500 up more than two and a half percent having its best month since 1974, by the way. Small caps were strong again today. Russell 2000 up for the sixth straight day. We had a long list of chief executives on this network today. Tonight, where their companies stand on the virus, the American economy, and our path forward. I think we can achieve the kind of stability and maybe even better stability than we had pre-virus. Uh, simply because of the reduced rates. I'm feeling a bit of a thaw, and I'm hoping it's a thaw, and uh, we're going to continue to work towards reopening. In the first quarter, we saw a little bit of softness in China as they were shut down. Uh, that's now, you know, come back a bit here in April. But overall, um, I would say all things considered, we're, we're very, you know, fortunate that we're in markets where, you know, people need uh, more computing. So that's, uh, that's really our focus. Starting next week, here in the U.S., we are going to open a significant number of Starbucks stores, by early June, plan to have over 90% of our stores opened in the U.S. We're talking about something that has billions of consumers around the world that are now moving uh, their behaviors online. Something like the COVID will likely accelerate that trend. For us, we're really just in the growth stage of trying to capture that growth. I think traffic will continue to improve, and I don't think we need to have you know the, the economy back to 100% to have um, reasonable returns. Again, subways are much smaller. It will be a challenge in, in a thousand different ways, right, as we, we rethink the way work is performed in a factory, at a job site, in an office. Uh, but again, safety will be the, the overarching priority here. It was positive news on Gilead's drug that gave those CEOs and investors new hope today. But Dr. Jeremy Faust, who's been with us at 7 p.m. since the start of this crisis, warns about moving too far too fast. He is with us once again tonight. Dr. Faust, welcome back. It's good to talk to you. Good to be here. You're not as optimistic about remdesivir as some others are today? I think that we are seeing a slight glimmer of hope here, but I worry that the exuberance is related to an old saying, 
that there's no sauce better than hunger. And we want something so bad that even something that looks a little bit promising is getting blown out of proportion in terms of what it means for the number of lives that we're going to save here. Why so? Well, in particular, the studies that are going around the Internet today, that we actually haven't even seen the studies, they actually changed up what they were looking at. So initially, the company was trying to detect if this medication would save lives, bring people off of ventilators. But instead, actually, at the last minute, they changed their mind and said, well, we can't look at that. We're just going to look at, of the patients who went home, how quickly did they go home? And I think that's actually an important thing that they found, that they found it looks like that it's, it's going in that direction, and we can talk about why, but it's not the game changer. You don't believe what Dr. Fauci had to say today in the Oval Office? You, you just said things that are going around the Internet. This came from Dr. Fauci directly today. Right. I, I, I shouldn't uh, say that. Dr. Fauci is saying that he's seen results. And so it's not, those aren't rumors. That's correct. But what I mean is the interpretation of them as being, as being a little bit more uh, substantial in terms of that's what's going around and stock prices going up and that sort of thing. I think that Dr. Fauci has been through this before with HIV. And he sees that when a drug shows any glimmer of hope, that's a great sign because it means that we're at the beginning of a story, but not at the end of a story. So I, I understand what, where he's coming from with his optimism, but I'm measured because what we found so far is just a little piece of the puzzle. Understood. No one's suggesting it's, it's a panacea, but y- you would submit that it is a step in the right direction for a therapeutic. It appears to be. We have to see that study. But at the same time, we got data today from The Lancet, which is one of the most prestigious journals in the world, and they did a, another trial, which was also, both of these studies look to be very well designed. And that study shows absolutely no clinical improvement. And again, it's, that's a big disappointment because we want to see something that saves lives. Now, getting people home sooner, actually, it does have a benefit. It's not just a number. It means that we could, patients, of course, want to go home sooner. It, it means that we can have less PPE at, at the hospital burn through, and it's less expensive possibly. It's, there's a lot of good things about it in terms of capacity. But again, it's, uh, I, I, would, I was rooting for some kind of mortality benefit. Would, would you, well, the mortality rate was lower. Um, in those that were given remdesivir versus placebo? It looks like there is a, a non, well, there's not a statistically significant uh, effect in that, in that direction. So again, and, and if, if there is, by the way, it, it looks like it might be close. So I'm not going to say that there wasn't one. But what I will say is it was a pretty small benefit, it looks like. And so you would have to treat 20 or 30 patients to, to save one life. Again, that's a big deal, especially if you're that one life. And I think that this is the beginning of, does, this, does a medication like this, does a medication like this in, in collaboration with a, another medication work? This is the beginning of trying to find something that will have that robust, large mortality benefit that we are all after. To be clear, would you prescribe it? Hmm, that's a very interesting question. I think that it would depend on the situation. I think that we absolutely have to look very carefully at who, which patients received this drug and which patients did not. So when the trial is actually published in terms of a journal, we get to look very closely at who, uh, what the demographics, the ages, how sick they were and how sick they weren't. And if, uh, if, they, if all that it shows is that it was safe and that people went home sooner, then yes, I would certainly give it to some patients. But you are, you're not sitting here this evening saying that steadfastly you would give this medication to a COVID patient who was in your hospital who was terribly ill? 
it's really hard without seeing the data. Yeah, we, what Dr. Fauci said would lead me to believe that I would, but again, we have to see these data and see what they mean and to know which patients it applies to because we're going to have a supply issue as well. So we want to make sure that I would definitely give it to the patients who benefited from it in this trial and I would make sure that I didn't give it to anyone who it might have not helped or it might have hurt. And so that's what being in the clinic on the front line like I have to do, I have to say what, what works and for whom and when. And it's very complicated. So if, if what we're hearing is true, and I think it is, I would say, yes, there are going to be some patients who should receive this medication because it'll get them home sooner. Yes, I would, I, would, I would go with that. Dr. Faust, good to have you as always. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. That's Dr. Jeremy Faust with us tonight from Boston. There is more ahead on this CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Many parents are ready for the students to go back to school. But are the teachers ready? Before the break, images from around the world on the 122nd day of the pandemic. Welcome back. More and more states are planning to lift restrictions due to the slowing pace of coronavirus cases. New Jersey says state parks and golf courses will be allowed to reopen on Saturday, while Arkansas is lifting restrictions on restaurants. Florida beginning phase one of their reopening in most of the state starting on Monday. New York Governor Cuomo expected to make his decision on school reopenings this week. New York City is the largest school district in the United States with more than one million students in the public school system. The mayor has already said schools should stay closed. The governor questioned whether it's the mayor's decision to make. Michael Mulgrew is the president of the United Federation of Teachers, representing 200,000 New York City educators and employees. Michael, it's good to have you with us. Should schools reopen or should they stay closed? We need to reopen our schools because schools are open right now. This is what people, uh, in, especially here in New York City, the buildings are closed, school is open. We're close to a, uh, a high 80 attendance on us every day. But for us to move forward, we would like to be back in our buildings with our students, but we need to make sure that we're doing things that uh, safety comes first. So it's, it's not just how do you structure the school, but what are we doing first? Uh, what is the testing that has to happen that people are recommending that we need to do? Where is the evidence that when people are entering a school building, they're not going to spread the virus again, which is the first phase. And then the next piece would be, then how do we structure the school for social distancing? Very complicated, very difficult, but we would like to get back into our school buildings, but we need to make sure it's done uh, following the safety guidelines that the medical experts are telling us and not because of political expediency. I mean, you, you say schools are open. I mean, be clear, remote learning isn't nearly the same as being in a classroom with a teacher. I think we'd both agree I on that. I completely agree with you on that. But I will tell you that in terms of the teachers themselves, what they're doing now is so much more labor intensive, but they're doing so much more one-on-one -on -one work with each individual student. They're helping students. They're helping the parents understand their technologies and all of this other stuff. It is not the same. We would prefer to be in front of our students, but this virus doesn't allow us to do that. So I give the teachers in New York City all the credit for pulling this off because there was no planning. There was nothing in place. We were just closed. Uh, and the teachers figured out how to do all of this on their own, which is a great 
thing that we have to recognize, but now it's like, how do we reopen? When do we reopen? And what has to be in place? Yeah. Because it's not... I was going to say heroic efforts. And no, no question about that. Teachers have their own children they're trying to take care of as well. Let's not forget as they're trying to teach our children. I totally I totally get it. And I know you want schools to reopen. Do you think they will because of all the issues that you just mentioned? It, this is why it be the, the frustration for us as educators are people are talking about reopening. And when they speak about schools, they just say, oh, we should reopen the schools. Nobody on. And the people who are saying it don't understand the complications that come into opening the school. So right, right now is the time that schools are preparing for next school year. We have, have anyone had a discussion? Are schools supposed to observe social distancing? I would assume that would be the case, but I haven't heard, we haven't heard anyone say it. I don't think we're going to observe social distancing in all aspects of society except for schools. But then what does that mean to a school? Um, everybody remembers going to the school cafeteria. What happens when you change the class? Everyone's all marching up and down the hallways. This is a problem. But we can plan for this, but all you hear in this debate right now is should we open or uh, when do, do we open? Is it safe? And schools are child care services, which really upset the teachers when we're told that. Sure. Here we are. We're, we're, we're near May 1st. What is the out date uh, in the city of New York for the public school system? June 26th this year. Okay, so we have maybe a couple of months to go. Look, people always talk about the summer slide, what students don't learn uh, and what they forget during the summer months. We're we're dealt with uh, an an overwhelming situation this time because we've missed so much time in and of itself. How do you think about that? How do we prevent our our children from falling by the wayside from all the school they've missed and then the summer piled on top of that? So we changed our grading policy just this week. Uh, we now have a grading policy that we can recognize that will automatically tell us by the grade that a child is given that this child uh, is going to need some academic intervention, maybe not as intense as a whole summer school redoing your seat time, and others it would be a whole they have to redo uh, a six week intensive. So we're trying to by changing our grading policy and make it even across the entire city. We're trying to use our final grades for this year to kick in what we're doing in the summer. But once again, are we going to be doing it remotely or are we going to be doing it in person inside of the building? That question is still out there. And that's the frustrating part because we need to be planning this stuff. The educators, the school staff, the principals, we we need to be told what we're planning for. And we're really not getting that information from anyone. Mm -hmm. It's just we're going to open or not open. And I don't think they understand what goes into all of that. For sure. My my kids won't be happy with my last question now. But are you giving any thought into And I'm not in the New York City school system, but nonetheless, they won't be happy anyway. You giving any thought to summer schooling for everybody as a result of what's happened? Uh, from what we're getting from many of the teachers at this point, we do focus groups all the time. We're getting from some of them. Some of the students are actually doing very well. They're, they're very good with self-direction and they're handling the work and they're definitely understanding the concepts that their classes need them to understand in order to say they have completed this work for that class. So we, we don't believe that should be the case at all. Yeah. Uh, but we do want to use it for those who definitely have been affected hardest by the virus because just think about a teacher, if there's one device in a school, in a house, and you have three siblings and a parent all working from home, and the other three siblings are all going to school, we have to, you know, we're doing teaching now at 8 o'clock at night. That is not, that child is going to need some summertime. We'd rather use, identify those children and actually use that time to help them and get them to where we need them to be 
to begin school next September. Yeah. Complex decisions uh, for certain. All yep. of us parents are thinking about it. We appreciate your time, Michael, very much. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Be well. All right. You as well. That's Michael Mulgrew, the United Federation of Teachers president in New York City. On day 122 of the global pandemic, has anything changed to bring drug making back into the United States? Talk to a man with unique insight on that very question. We'll do it next. We're back now. The coronavirus crisis highlighted the United States' dependence on other countries, mostly China and India, for drugs, painkillers, fever reducers, and medical ingredients. But on day 122 of this pandemic, has anything changed? And if not, why? John McShane is managing partner of Validant as a healthcare consultancy. John, it's good to have you with us tonight. Do you think this crisis will cause us to make more of our pharmaceuticals in the United States? I think we're going to take a long look at that. Our supply chains are so long today, and they're primarily outside of this country. Uh, and so as the pandemic has um, gone on, what we've seen is, is, you know, some limited supply chain interruptions already. But you can expect more as this goes on. I'm looking at some so, of the I'm looking at some of the numbers you've, you've delivered to us tonight. You say it will cost more than one hundred billion dollars and two decades to get us to the point that 50 percent of our drugs are made in this country. Uh, that's right. That's what I think. Um, basically, almost all of the manufacturing capability for uh, active pharmaceutical ingredients, the drug substance part of all of the drug products, uh, has been offshored. Uh, basically, we get less than 20 percent of our um, APIs today uh, from the United States. APIs, just so everybody uh, who's playing at home can follow along, active pharmaceutical ingredients. These are the ingredients that go into the drugs that we take, correct? That is right. Um, and so uh, as, as generics came in and India and China and other countries in the world uh, stepped up their technology and were looking for other places to expand in manufacturing, uh, they became the low-cost uh, producers. And so, um, so as generics rose, uh, cost became more and more a pressure point, and so it accelerated in the 90s, 2000s, and even even now. Uh, it's accelerated the movement of APIs to other countries, low-cost producers. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, frankly, startling numbers. Uh, John, we appreciate your time tonight. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. We'll continue to follow that story. John McShane of Validant. You have to wonder what that would mean for drug prices in this country if we're talking about such significant numbers. More than $100 billion, he says, in two decades to get us to the point where we're only producing 50% of our drugs in this country. It was a big day on Wall Street. As you know, futures were higher just moments ago. Big earnings after the bell tonight. Some big tech companies, which have really led the way, uh, had big beats after the bell. Sets us up pretty well for tomorrow. For all of us here at CNBC, I'm Scott Wapner. Please be well. Shark Tank begins right now. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. 
Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash.